God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. Welcome back to Family Discussion. Pastor Marcos here, and I am with Lisa Spencer, who is down in Virginia, and it must be a lot uh, cooler or warmer down there than it is up here because it's getting cold. Well, up I don't here, know man. what's the temperature up there because we've cold. actually been having some fairly, I mean, relatively warm days. Yeah, no, the temperature is cold. I don't know what it is exactly, but cold is what we call it here in New York. It has been freezing, and oh. uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like. I, I I like the cold well enough, but I just. It, it takes a minute. So it's the holidays. And Lisa, I wanted to ask you this question because you posted something on Twitter. Ooh, I don't know. A little after Thanksgiving. And I want to ask, what was Thanksgiving in the Spencer household? Like, apparently it was quite the party for you guys. You know, so my husband is the oldest of six. He has Woo! five siblings. All right. And they have been very big on getting together for Thanksgiving. And of course, it's not just them, you know, their spouses, their uh-huh. kids, their grandkids. Um, so we had a full house. Um, not we, actually, we hosted the, fam- the family Thanksgiving last year, okay. and there were 19 of us. Whew. And that wasn't, ev- that wasn't everybody. Oh, that's bigger than um, I'm ready for, man. <laughs> this year, um, his youngest sister hosted, who lives uh, just north of Baltimore. Oh, okay. Um, it's not so far from you guys. In Maryland. So we drove up there and there was, I, you know, I did like a rough count and not even including the kids. I think there was 24, uh, 24 of us. And, and, and thankfully, everyone is a fabulous cook. I and know. the food was the, the food Ooh. was just smoking. What was what did Lisa Spencer bring? to the table so i do a um now i know here is where uh my my fellow african americans are gonna say say what i actually do a green bean casserole but i thought that wasn't allowed uh you know i grew up not knowing not having green bean casserole at the thanksgiving dinner but i found a recipe that adds a whole lot of flavor Okay. To it, okay. and I got, and I get compliments. So it's it's not your regular standard. Throw a pan of mushroom soup in the green beans and throw <laughs> some stuff on it and put it in the oven. You don't do no, that, no, man. I like that stuff, but I've I've been told nah, that uh, it's not that. allowed in. I can't in do that. No, this is made so, with right. bacon and onion and Ooh, garlic right. and the mushroom soup and real mushrooms and mm. monterey jack cheese oh. and of course the onion you know onion topping and those Man. flavors combined together are just fabulous so i found this a few years ago okay. and i said okay now 
I can do the green bean casserole. All right, but you're doing it your way. You're not doing I'm it. I'm doing the it way my way. It says on the soup can. All right, very cool. I brought the mac and cheese this year, um, and so it was a six cheese mac and cheese. Got to Ooh. work on that. It was pretty yummy. And uh, and then we also brought the Brussels sprouts. But we were at some friends from church, and and it's you know it's weird being a pastor around the holidays because you know uh, you're you love your congregants but you're their pastor you're not really friends per se you're the pastor um but there's one family in the church um that we've become really close with and uh it's one of those natural friendships where if if the lord were to call us away from goodwill at some point they would be friends for a long time. And so we were oh, over there okay. hanging out and it was a really good time. So uh, 40 people at that place, not in my house. I, I can't do that many people in my house. I'd freak out. But <laughs> somebody else's house, about 40 of us hanging out, oh, eating my food. It was a good time. Lots of football. They're Buffalo Bills fans. And so we were watching the Bills game while the food was getting prepped. It was a good time. So, um, well, also on Twitter, Lisa, because this is how we're going to segue in. You weren't just talking about Thanksgiving. You also tweeted something out that I found really, really interesting. It was an article from Table Talk. So this was uh, sometime, I guess this is coming out on Tuesday. So sometime last week uh, you tweeted this out. Tell us about this article. Well, you know, I had already gotten the print version of the Table Talk, minist- uh, Table Talk magazine. And for those who don't know... It is a um, a product of Ligonier um, yeah. Ministry, which is very reformed. So they, you know, they come at theology from a, a traditional reformed perspective. Mm-hmm. And so this edition, the December edition, was on last things. And I had gotten it because I was had already been alerted to this article on, and there are a number of articles related to last things meaning eschatology so um this particular article was on the rapture and the church uh, by nick Beck's basic um who's a pca pastor in south carolina and um that's why i gotten it because he posted it i was like oh you know well what if you know i appreciate his writing so i'm like i'm sure he did a you know the topic justice and surely and and sure enough he did when i got rid of the print version so i saw that the online version was available i'm like oh Mm -hmm. man i gotta post this and you know and honestly and what was interesting well well let me back up because um you know the rapture is is something i don't i don't know about you i think well, actually, I do know about you. It's just one of those things. When I became a Christian, it was just accepted. Like there's yeah. this pre-tribulational rapture. Jesus is going to come back for his church. You need to be ready. Don't be left behind. Hence the series. Mm-hmm. And yes, I did read all the books. I read not only all the books. I read some of the kids' version as well oh my goodness so like, i was hard. i was in the deep end of this all right all right keep going keep going so yeah i mean it was it was one of those things where i didn't i didn't realize there was there was an alternative right and there are certain passages that would be pointed to to say yes this proves jesus is going to come you know there's going to be kind of the secret rapture before he comes back 
um, to judge the living and the dead. Um, and because of where my, you know, when I first came to Christ, I was part of this student fellowship um, that was an outreach arm of an independent church in Los Angeles. Okay. And I, I, I emphasize independent because that I'm not to say that all independent churches, you know, are the same, but one of the issues when you get sort of the, you know, the, the guy who feels like God is telling him to pastor a church and then he goes and starts a work with, you know, some, uh, some questionable foundations. And that's what I was introduced to. Okay. And, but, but, and here's what I've, I've come to later learn, um, you know, being in seminary and you learn about church history and how, you know, particularly in America, how certain theological expressions have, you know, and paradigms have kind of taken root in, um, you know, in the fabric of American evangelicalism. But of course, you know, I didn't know any of that, you know, when I, uh, when I first became a Christian, it was, it was just a given that you're going to have this rapture. And what was interesting is I, is when I posted, you know, kind of flash forward now to when I posted this article, that's really, it, it, it challenged that paradigm, basically said that this is based on a misinterpretation of scripture, predominantly first Thessalonians four, I don't know the exact number, uh, where it talks about that, you know, the, you know, we're going to meet Jesus in the air. Right. Um, it's first Thessalonians I, I, 4, 13 to 17. 4, 13. Right. And then you could point to the other one. Uh, I, I don't think Nick mentioned this in Matthew 24, 40, when it talks about, you know, two women will be, two men will be in the field, one will be taken away. Um, and so these were kind of proof texts, if you will, to point to this this rapture and because the you know the foundation was already shaky where you didn't really have a lot of security in in Christ and there it, it induced this fear like particularly if you know sanctification is rough and you know we have some slow areas so if you mess it up it, there's there's like this fear oh man if Jesus comes back and there was always this emphasis, you know, Jesus is going to come back any day. He, you know, the rapture can happen every day. Um, and so, you know, there's this fear and insecurity that you have, um, you know, in your Christian walk. And what was interesting to me is when I posted this article, like a number of people chimed in with very similar stories. Uh, there was this one woman who said, I, you know, so many times I, if I lost track of my mom in the store, I thought the rapture had happened, you know, and, and you know, first of all, Jesus, you know, if we're reading our Bibles, um, right, um, not that, you know, not that we're going to always be 100% right, but when I look at scripture now and I see, you know, when Christ comes back, he's coming to judge the living and the dead, man, that's a comfort. All the mm. tragedy, all the evil, all the injustice that's going on in the world, man, he's going to knock that out. Mm -hmm. And people are going to be judged. Amen. People who denied him, people who mocked him, 
Um, that's, that's a comfort. But what I was taught in my early Christian years was far from a comfort. Wow. It was scary. Yeah, I, I, I come up in a different version of dispensationalism than you did because yours was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, yours was much more connected to Pentecostalism, right? Or yes. at least, yeah, okay. Um, mine was not. Mine was connected to the conservative Baptist movement. Um, and, and this isn't necessarily the Southern Baptist movement, although there were Southern Baptist churches around, but this was, there's a denomination called this, the conservative Baptist convention. And that was how I grew up and, and went also to, uh, independent Baptist churches. And I remember as a kid, um, they showed a movie to us called the thief in the night. Do you remember this movie? Um, I've heard of it. I, I may have seen it like long time ago. I don't. I, I don't remember much that. about it except I remember the main character comes home, uh, you know, past the bicycle that has the wheel still turning, you know, um, and she she walks in and she's terrified and crying out for her parents and her parents are gone because they've been raptured and she's been left behind and. Um, you know, I'm like six years old and they make us watch this movie. We're all freaked out. And then it was, all right, kids, who wants to accept Jesus? And we're all like, yeah, I want to accept Jesus. I want to go with mom and dad. That's crazy. Um, you know, and, and that was, I didn't have so much the fear of losing my salvation that you can get in a, in a more of a Pentecostal background. Um, because we were very, very strong on uh, a Baptist doctrine called eternal security. Um, and, uh, they, they don't have a covenantal framework. And so because of that, they've, they've put in this doctrine in its place. And, um, but it was a, it was a drive for evangelism. The rapture can happen at any moment. Therefore you must go out and share the gospel so that people aren't left behind. Um, and, you know, one of the, the people who really popularized this in the nineties was Tim LaHaye. Um, and his Left Behind series that you mentioned, um, I went to the college that was founded by him uh, in El Cajon, California. And so, uh, you know, when I went to that college, I didn't realize that rapture theology and mainstream Christianity were different. I just thought that everybody, I thought that was Christian theology. I didn't realize there were different views. I didn't realize different perspectives. Were, I, I just, I thought that just like everybody believes Jesus rose from the dead, everybody believes in the rapture. That's just what Christians believe. It wasn't until I was in a class and one of the professors at the school um, was lamenting that only 13% of Christians believed this. And only 13%. That was a massive, um, that was a massive question mark for me. I'm like, hold on. You're telling me 87% of the Christian world doesn't believe this to be true well what do they believe and that's when i started looking around and if you if you include eastern orthodoxy and catholicism then yeah i mean it's like it's about 13 percent or I'm, I'm just guessing that he's right i don't think he's making up that number um and but i do think that while only 13 percent of people would call themselves dispensationalists and probably less now because um i think uh, we've seen rapture theology and dispensationalism as a whole really um, declining as a as an accepted um, Christian theology over the last 20, 30 years. Um, I do think that it has gotten in the water of broader evangelicalism. And while dispensationalism might not be the main viewpoint, 
rapture theology is, I would say, the default eschatology of evangelicalism. It yeah. is the assumption that that's just what's going to happen. There will be a pre-tribulation rapture. I agree. And I would go further and say, I think that dispensationalism is has been the default paradigm. Um, and even from people who don't, who've never even heard of the word, right? And I would bet, so if you go to your, you know, your regular, you know, it, your standard American evangelical church, you know, whether it's non-denominational or, you know, Baptist or, um, you know, well, not Presbyterian because we, <laughs> we, we know that. It's a little bit different. But, it's a little bit different. Um, if you would, you know, and you took and you took a survey and you asked specific questions about, you know, what about God's plan for his people, right? And you would ask about, you know, is there a separate plan for Israel versus the church? It, you know, should we be concerned about what's going on in the political state of Israel because of what scripture says about Israel. Um, is there, you know, is there a, a rapture? You know, how is, how is God going to wrap up his program? I would bet a very high percentage of people would articulate dispensational theology even if they've never heard the word i think you're absolutely right and and let's let's talk about this a little bit um you know you've mentioned israel you know you've, you've mentioned kind of how this has become the default so i'm teaching a class on the book of revelation right now i think i, I mentioned that last episode briefly um and it's been a wonderful class and and really has in a lot of ways helped me recapture the beauty of the book of revelation because it is a it's a stunning book that i've never really been able to grasp until studying it and um a couple of the people who've been helping me with this through their books are uh, Vern Poitras and GK Beale um just some some wonderful wonderful stuff and uh the ancient commentary on the New Testament um which is a kind of a compendium of the first few centuries of the church and people who had mentioned it in you know um it, it's a really cool it's been a really cool study but in doing this, I also wanted to, I knew we had a lot of dispensationalists, or even if they wouldn't say that they're dispensationalists, people who had been influenced or even had adopted dispensationalist ideas. Um, I did about a 45-minute excursus on what is dispensationalism and how has that impacted this today. And I did that in week two because we, before we could even get to the book of Revelation itself, we had to kind of address some of these things um, that were affecting people's interpretation. And so just like a really quick um, background for people of where this comes from, um, dispensationalism comes from a guy named John Nelson Darby. Um, he is from the UK, and uh, he is uh, at first an Anglican clergyman, but he, he really struggles with authority. He doesn't believe that um, there should be authority structures above the local church. And so he ends up leaving Anglicanism for the Plymouth Brethren movement, um, which is known for being hyper-congregationalist um, and very suspicious of clergy, very suspicious of authority, uh, you know, denominational structures. And um, he brings with him a way of interpreting the Bible that actually is described uh, really well in an article on Christianity Today right now. It came out toward the end of November by Daniel Hummel. 
It's called uh, When the Best Bible Reading Tool Made Bible Readings Worse. Um, he's talking about concordances and the way that, um, you know, a, a scientific, quote-unquote, method of reading the Bible uh, and word chains and stuff like that really ended up changing how people interpret the scriptures. Um, he takes that. And he adds in a novel framework, a brand new framework, um, and we're talking mid-19th century when he does this. And he calls it dispensationalism. He says that the, the, that God works with his people or with, with people in general in different ways depending on the dispensation that they're in. And he had seven dispensations, and so he works with Adam and Eve differently than he does with um, that Inter, that Noahic period, different than Abraham, different than Moses, David, and on and on and on. Seven dispensations. Um, although, if you enter into dispensationalism, you find yourself in a major debate with people who believe that there's 12 dispensations. It, it gets pretty it gets pretty intense. Um, but, here's, here's what's important. At the heart of dispensationalism is a fundamental belief that there are two works of redemption happening there's a work of redemption for israel and there's a work of redemption for the church um and and here's here's what happens throughout the old testament period they're waiting for a messiah to come messiah comes he offers the kingdom of god to the people of israel and they reject it and it is because of the rejection of the kingdom that jesus then goes to the cross, is resurrected, and establishes a church as literally a parenthetical. Um, the church is seen as this kind of plan. I've actually literally heard them call it a plan B of redemption. It wasn't ever supposed to be this way. He what? was supposed to bring the kingdom in. They were supposed to receive it. And that's the end. Now we enter into the millennial kingdom. I don't know how you do this without the death and resurrection of Jesus, but... They really believe that had Israel accepted Messiah when he came, that there would have been no need for the church. Um, and so the church is, it, it exists as a way of um, basically condemning and convicting the nation of Israel for their rejection of Jesus. Um, and then at some point in the future, God will remove the church, the parentheses will end, and he will reconvene plan A of redemption, which is the saving of Israel, um, and, and the tribulation takes place and all of that. So I, I give you that whole history so that people understand the rapture has a specific function in dispensational theology, and that's to remove the church so that God's primary work of salvation and redemption in Israel can reconvene. Um, the church shouldn't even be here, according to dispensationalists. It's just a plan B that God's using us to shame Israel. Um, it's it's a pretty crazy theology in some respects. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to be like mean about it. I grew up in it. I know a lot of people who still hold to this theology. They love Jesus. This is a Christian theology. I don't. This isn't like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or anything like that. This is Christian theology, but it's just, in my view and in your view, Lisa, incredibly wrong. Um, yes. But here's what happens in popular American evangelicalism. In 1909, the Schofield Bible comes out, and it is the only study Bible at the time. Um, 
And it's the only study Bible until the NIV study Bible comes out in 1984. It's the only one. It's, it literally like goes from like Geneva to Schofield. And he includes dispensationalism in all of his notes. And that becomes the like theological lingua franca of American evangelicalism. It goes completely untouched. Dallas Theological Seminary, your alma mater, becomes a bastion of dispensational teaching. And then Calvary Chapel is launched. And they are thoroughly dispensationalist. And they rule the day in evangelicalism. So the Bible, the institution, the, like the seminary, and the church, the biggest factors, all dispensationalists. And that transforms American evangelicalism so that it's just assumed that this is true. And it's a thing that's only existed for like 160 years. Yeah. And, and I would say, and I, I would say it's also important to note the, you know, the framework of dispensationalism, particularly the hermeneutic that's used that, you know, relies on, and, uh, you know, in some cases, an overly literal translation. Now, now we do want to be careful here. Don't send me any nasty notes about being, you know, going off the liberal rail. When I say overly literal, yes, the Bible, what the Bible communicates is literally true. But the Bible, the scripture is also written in different genres. And so you mentioned the book of Revelation, which is highly symbolic. And so in that symbolism is a, it, it points to something that's literal, but it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence of what's being said. So when dispensationalism came along, the, where, where, Christ, where Christianity was moving, um, it was moving away from the center of sort of intellectual thought, right? And so dispensationalism, because of its kind of plain and simple reading, appealed to grassroots, appealed to the, you know, the people who just, you know, they just wanted to go to church and love Jesus. And yet this makes sense that, you know, that you have, you know, the church, you have the Israel and the church, because after all, if, especially if you're not connecting the dots and you're not taking into account what when the Bible says Israel, particularly in in terms of fulfillment of covenantal promises, uh, oh, that must mean, you know, that. And of course, this this came particularly strong um, when Israel uh, was formed as a nation in 1948. That and then by that time, because dispensation, you know, you have the Schofield Bible, you have this framework of dispensationalism. So then that just triggered like, oh, okay, this is how we're going to interpret Old Testament prophecy, right? That it's taken in a way, in some cases, particularly the older versions, the, you know, the, the, the more, um, yeah, so the older versions of dispensationalism um, immediately saw, you know, that connection to the political state of the geopolitical state of Israel. But it's important, it's particularly when you have the rise of the fundamentalist movement at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, dispensationalism appealed to the common man because we're taking our Bible literally, we're taking it seriously. And we don't need an academy or clergy 
or experts to tell us how to read our Bible because we could do it for ourselves. And and that you know that that kind of anti-authoritarian um, vibe in dispensationalism comes from the root. That that was a part of what was so attractive about the Exclusive Brethren movement that Darby was a part of when he kind of created this theology called dispensationalism. It dispensationalists by and large are very skeptical of any kind of ecclesiastical authority any kind of denominationalism because a denomination can um tell you what is an appropriate or inappropriate way of interpreting the bible but if you can't if you don't want that if you believe it's just you and your bible and you don't need outside councils you don't need confessions and creeds um so dispensationalists by and large do not accept any of the confessions or creeds not even the apostles creed or nicene creed like they'll affirm them as true but they're not um they don't have any weight necessarily other than an interesting historical document in you know from the whatever century um when you're this kind of unmoored from an ecclesiastical structure or a confessional structure um it can lead to some pretty heinous abuses of these these doctrines and these scriptures to instill fear to abuse it doesn't always go that way by and large it doesn't go that way i'd say um but some of the fear that can be caught rather than taught is very real and and i wonder if you could share where did some of that fear come from in your own coming up how, how was the rapture used not used but how did it create in you a fear uh, response. What what was it you were it's, afraid of? So I'll go back to one thing that you said, but before we do that, there's one thing I do want to correct because I will have uh, my former professors at DTS um, sending me nasty notes if I don't make this clear, <laughs> clarification. Um, you know, just so I think that what you described in terms of the foundation of dispensationalism was absolutely correct. It did go through some iterations. So you have the, you know, you have that foundational period of, you know, what, what Darby articulated, what, um, what Schaefer, um, not Schaefer, um, oh gosh, like, yeah. Yeah, Schaefer. it's Schaefer, Lewis Schaefer. Le, yeah, Lewis Berry Schaefer, who was the founder of Dallas Seminary. Um, and he grabbed hold of this dispensational theology, you know, formed a whole institution around it. Um, and then you had, you know, a more revised articulation under Charles Ryrie that sort of corrected some of the, um, you know, some of that disjointedness. Um, because, she, you know, Lewis Berry Schaefer actually believed there were two new covenants. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Charles Riley came back and said, oh, no, 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 there's yeah. only one new covenant. Um and then you have the rise of progressive dispensationalism, which is looking at the Bible a little more cohesively and saying, well, wait a minute, is it Jesus at the center of all of this? Um, but at the same time, still making a distinction between Israel and the church. And oh, by the way, Israel is not necessarily um, the geopolitical state of Israel, but can be, can be defined in different ways. So I just wanted to say that, that there are iterations of dispensationalism, you know, there are developments since its early articulation. Um, and, you know, and, and uh, actually a lot of scholarship. I did go to Dallas Seminary 
where, of course, like you said, it's the bastion of dispensationalism. So we studied. And I actually took one of my electives in issues in dispensationalism, where you get to, you know, read about, you know, read what different dispensational thinkers were thinking. Um, so anyways, I just want to throw that out. But to get back to your question about the about the fear. So something you said a few minutes ago um, that about loss of salvation. I don't think it wasn't necessarily a loss of salvation. It's that the way that it was packaged in terms of who Jesus is coming back for, it it, it were the it was so serious Christians, right? And this goes back, and I think this too is a product of dispensationalism, kind of, where you have sort of this two-tier Christianity, right? So you have the really serious spiritual Christians and you have the carnal Christians. Um and, you know, never mind that, you know, you're either elect or you're not elect. Um, and so it was, you know, you need to be serious about Jesus because that's who he's coming back for. And that was the fear, was that I am not being a serious enough Christian because, you know, sanctification is hard and we have some slow areas of sanctification, right? We mess up and we think, oh my gosh, um, if Jesus came back today, I'm not going to be ready and I'm going to be left behind. Interesting. So the so the, the dispensationalism you came up in, only certain Christians got raptured. Only certain. Yeah, they're very serious ones. Because, you know, whether the carnal Christians, whether you would call them. I mean, this is a long time ago. So because mm, no, yeah. I came to, I, you know, I came to faith my first semester in college in 1982. Um, and what's interesting too, is because sometimes my husband and I will go back and listen to some of the eighties Christian music. And it's like, it, I mean, even in the music, it's there. In I terms wish we'd of all been rapture. ready. That, that, yes. that was a popular, popular worship song. I wish we'd all been ready. Oh yeah. man. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there are a number of them from that, you know, from, from the eighties. And I don't know beyond that, but, um, it, you know, it, so whether those not so serious Christians were actually Christians or or not, because here's the thing. And again, this is a long time ago, but there was not never the language to my recollection of elect versus non-elect, of regenerate versus non-regenerate, you know, yeah. that either you're baptized by the spirit into the kingdom or you're not. So, yeah, that is a different flavor, and this may get to kind of some of the developments within dispensationalism, particularly the distinction between uh, a more conservative Baptist uh, cessationist view of dispensationalism and a more Pentecostal view. Um, the way I was brought up, all Christians, all Christians were, were brought uh, in the rapture, the, even the carnal Christians. And we were taught carnal Christianity was a thing, um, and, and that is... Uh, yeah, that might be a different episode, but in the Reformed tradition, we there's no such thing. They're just Christians. Um, but there was this kind of divide where you have carnal Christians who will be raptured, um, and one professor put it, um, smelling of smoke. Um, and and I, you know, all right, uh, that's a again, that's a different conversation. Um, but I, I think what's interesting there is we also didn't have a whole lot of language around election. Um, in fact, it was very common for people to say that they were like, 
three and a half point Calvinists and stuff like that. Like they, they were this interesting mix of, um, you're saved by grace through faith. You're saved in Christ alone. All the solas were there. Um, so it was part of kind of the larger Protestant tradition, right? But when it came to election, free will was very much um, center here. And that was part of the weight that we had on our shoulders was people are going to be left behind if we can't convince them to follow Jesus. And evangelism was all about your ability to communicate the gospel and to convince people that the way they're thinking is wrong, to, to scare people, like whatever you have to do to get them saved. Because here's the thing, sanctification was important, but it was not necessary in the way that I was brought up. I don't think they would ever say it's not necessary, but it was very clear. Your job was to get them saved so they'd be raptured. All the rest of their development, move on. Move on. Get to the next sinner. Get them saved before the rapture happens. This making of disciples was not really the goal. It was hell insurance. And I think that really has taken a long time for me to um, get out of my mind when I think about evangelism. Or even when I think about the primary mission of the church. The mission of the church is to make disciples not to do evangelism. Now you have to do evangelism. That's a part of making disciples, but so is training people up in the means of grace. So is corporate worship. So is um, the confession of sin and repentance. Like there's a lot more <laughs> to making a disciple than just getting them saved. And um, so, yeah, I, I've had to go through quite a long time of, um, you know, people talked about deconstruction a lot over the last couple of years. My first journey with deconstruction was deconstructing all of this. Um, and because I really did have to, I went to Westminster Theological Seminary, right? My first year I'm there, um, I'm hearing really strong Reformed theology, definitions of the church, definitions of the gospel, of what God is doing in the world that were new to me. Um, because I'd only come up with dispensational frameworks. And it was a crisis moment for me. I remember being on the phone and I'm like, I don't know if dispensationalists have the gospel. Like I was freaked out. I was, it, it was, now I, I've calmed down a little bit since then. I do think that dispensationalists are saved. So this isn't a salvation issue by any means, but it is an important one. It's certainly an important one. And I think that eschatology is something we want to take seriously because it impacts so much. And I know, Lisa, that's one of the reasons why you were so interested in sharing this article by Nick Batzig and um, why that whole Table Talk issue that came out in December is key. That's why we're talking about it. We're doing current events this season, and this is a current conversation thanks to Table Talk. Um, why do you think eschatology is this important? I agree with you, but I'd love to hear you articulate, like, what's the – why yeah. is this so key to understand? Yeah, so I, um, you know, I, again, so I'll tweet. I probably spend too much. I'm giving away. I spend too much time on Twitter. This is, <laughs> but anyways, I, I saw this tweet that you know, guys simply said, you know, yeah, I guess it's time to work on my eschatology. And there, are, you know, few people and, and people I respect that said, 
you know, nah, you know, Jesus is coming back. And, you know, and that's, you know, you have this concept, not that any one of those said it, but I have heard this from time to time. There's panel, pan millennialism, right? It will all pan <laughs> out in the end. Right. Um, and, and, and I think why it's important is, and I like the way in the Table Talk magazine, the first article in there by Keith Matheson, I think really some, the title of this sums it up in a nutshell, eschatology, a whole Bible concept. You cannot get to the last things until you start with the first things, right? What did God establish from Genesis 1? How is he working out his plan for his creation? Um, and in between that, that, you know, how he's doing that, like, we need to take that serious. And here's why, because that's going to influence, it's going to impact how you apply your theology today. Just like when we encountered, you know, we came to Christ and we're, you know, in the midst of, you know, this dispensational theology was the, it was the, the default, it was the foundation. Um, and then you have these, you know, crazy ideas about the rapture, like how you think God is working that out, how he's, you know, what is he doing through his son? How is he going to wrap up his program? That has an impact for what you believe today. And especially, you know, as we look at the news and we see all kind of crazy stuff happening and, and even in the church and you're asking like, what's going on? Your, what you think about how, how God is working out his program according to what he has said in scripture. And that is connecting the dots from Genesis to Revelation is going to impact how you see these current events going on. No question. And I think that you're, um, you're absolutely right. We have to look Genesis to Revelation, right? Eschatology is not just a revelation, um, you know, Matthew uh, 24, 25. It, it's not just those chapters eschatology um and i'm i'm just straight stealing this from people like richard gaffin and gk beale Vern poithers eschatology is um really the entirety of life particularly like if we're thinking time temporally it's everything that happens since the resurrection and ascension of jesus christ it is um we are in the last days and we have been in the last days and uh, the writer of Hebrews begins in these last days. He has spoken to us in a better way in Jesus Christ. Um, when John writes to the uh, writes to the seven churches, he begins by saying, "I'm your partner in the tribulation, right now at the end of the first century, because the tribulation is part of what we live every day as in the church. We we deal with the tribulation of being in a sin soaked world, and so I, I think." Um, what we want to do is is understand eschatology not just in a temporal like last things way but in an ultimate things way it, it, that's a better i think definite it, it is the final things but in a ultimate sense this is what god is doing in the world to bring everything to its end to its telos to the eschaton and when we when we limit eschatology to be just about well what do you believe about the millennium or, you know, how do we understand the book of Revelation? I think we're missing a much richer, uh, more beautiful picture 
of of what eschatology really teaches through the New Testament. Yeah. And oh, by the way, it's Revelation, not Revelations. <laughs> although Revelations are a revelation of Jesus Christ. Although there's only one. Although although there are multiple visions. So there are multiple visions I'll give them that. in the revelation in the in of the, Jesus in the one revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes. Um uh, there's a lot more to get to here and we're already kind of running long and and I I don't want to kill our listeners, but there's a, there's a whole other side of this, particularly the way that dispensationalism interacts with politics that I think is worth a conversation sometime in the next few weeks. I don't know if we'll do it next time or not, but I do think that's a conversation to have because there is a reason um, that dispensationalist view of Israel um, really impacts foreign policy for the United States. Um, there's a reason why dispensationalists have a not just a suspicion, but a deep hatred for things like the United Nations. Um, these are theological positions that have immediate, uh, particularly in the world of foreign policy, immediate political implications. So there's there's a whole side of this conversation we haven't gotten to that I know if people are listening, you'd be like, why haven't they talked about this? I, I'm aware that it's there. We just haven't gotten there and we're 45 minutes into the episode so we're probably not going to be able to get there today um but lisa i wonder now that just kind of to, to close us up you've you've come through dispensationalism and now you're i don't know i think amil right it would be your position yeah, if pretty you have much. To, yeah. Mm -hmm. but when you think about eschatology now um now that you've gotten over some of the like I don't know, theological PTSD of being a dispensationalist. Yeah, although, you know, I still have, <laughs> I do still have a visceral reaction when I see 666, which is crazy because uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's, again, the book of Revelation is so rich in symbolism. And, but, but that just goes to show how ingrained it is that teaching was. That even today, I would still, when I see it, um, there's that immediate visceral reaction. Then I have to like talk myself off to the ledge, right? Yeah. Oh, it's just, it's just the number. Like, don't freak <laughs> out. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, that number just by itself, you know, like I said, I'm teaching through the book of revelation and, um, we got to that chapter and, um, we're talking about Mark of the Beast and 666 and, uh, you know, I'm telling people you can't accidentally get the Mark of the Beast. And I almost, I, I bit my tongue. I almost said the Mark of the Beast is not the vaccine. You know, those kinds of things that we were hearing at the time. But, well, listen, um, one of my professors at DTS tweeted that same thing. And that's yeah. why I said we have to be careful with how we <laughs> describe dispensationalists because, right. you know, there are dispensationalists who don't believe some of the crazy things that the are in the earlier articulation but i was so glad that i saw him you know say that that's not it's not yeah. something you accidentally get here's the problem though when a theology is taught in the academy and this is this is an issue that i have with dispensationalism when a theology is taught in the academy and it purposefully has no confessional or ecclesial guardrails you are now setting loose a theology that has a lot of fearful things in it 
telling people they don't need theological training, handing them the book, handing them a dispensational chart, I'm sorry, you're now liable for all the crazy things. You're liable. It's just, I, uh, while I... While I respect that in the academy, progressive dispensationalism has turned its back on some of the, the excesses of dispensationalism, um, it's still dispensationalism's fault that people are out here afraid that they can get the mark of the beast accidentally through a vaccine. Uh, there's nobody else who was teaching that kind of nonsense except dispensationalists back in the day. So while the academy may have shifted, the people in the pews didn't. And it's still on. I still, I still say, then fix it. If you don't just say, oh, that's not us. Well, <laughs> y'all caused the problem. Go fix the problem. And that's the next step I'd like to see the Academy make. Um, but it's hard because it's not a whole lot of dispensationalist academies left. Um, most have rejected yeah. it whole, whole cloth. And critically, I would say that that really is incumbent upon the pastors who have been trained in dispensational institutions like DTS. Yeah. Because if they if they are aware that, you know, if there has been a shift in DTS, there was once a very strong focus on dispensationalism to the point where you had to sign off. But as a student, I didn't in fact I went through that transition away from dispensationalism while I was at DTS. That was a whole lot of fun, let me tell you. But um the professors have to sign a statement. They have to adhere to some form of dispensationalism. It's not as strong as it used to be. Um, it, you know, it's still there. But I would say for the people who are being trained, um, and particularly because there is now more of a focus on a whole, you know, um, a holistic theology. Um, yeah, I mean, take, you know, take what you learn and then take that to your people. Right. Because if you're still if you're if you, the pastor, are communicating to your people that you can accidentally get the mark of the beast. Well, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. But if you know better. Yeah. Right. That's the bridge to me between the academy and the pews. Yeah. Well, and, and it's why, you know, there there is a real danger in um, uh, in dispensational circles. There's a danger where you have a lot of pastors who don't go get training. Uh, because a lot of these dispensationalist churches don't require their pastors to have an MDiv. Um, they're independent Bible churches or they're uh, non-denominational churches where ordination doesn't require an MDiv. Um, you can kind of be ordained by the pastor who's there and they just lay hands on you and ordain you. Now you're a pastor. Now you're preaching with authority and you're learning without any kind of seminary education based on what you can get your hands on. Well, what can you get your hands on? dispensationally tinged stuff because it's still all over the place and it perpetuates a cycle. So there's a whole lot of things that have to have to be dealt with there. Um, but I, I think, you know, what I want to leave people with today and, and Lisa, you can chime in when I'm done. I'll give you the last word. You know, I, I think I want to encourage people to find a, a good guide through the book of Revelation or through eschatology um, that doesn't have some of this dispensational baggage because I think what we tend to do when we leave dispensationalism is say, well, then I'm done. I don't want to talk about eschatology anymore because it was just drummed. It was like slammed down our throat, right? Like we're done with it. So we're like, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. I don't want to read the book of Revelation. I don't want to talk about eschatology. Leave me alone. And I was there for a long time, to be honest. Um, but this little book by Vern Poitras, 
um, the Returning King. You can get it for free online at, at uh, Frame. John Frame and Vern Poitras offer a lot of their work completely for free online. Um, this is one of those free books. It's very easy to read. It's not very long. It acts as a guide through the Book of Revelation. It's not a full-blown commentary, but it's a helpful guide through the Book of Revelation. And it, I think, is a gift to the church that this book is out there because a lot of us who are recovering dispensationalists need a guide to recapture this beautiful part of God's revelation to us. Um, and we haven't known what to do with it for a long time. So I'd encourage people um, to take the risk and go back and look at Revelation with a different lens, and you might may find some real beautiful, um, inspiring stuff in there. And it's a it's a book of blessing and encouragement that has been turned into something else. And I encourage people to go back. Lisa, any encouragement for people yeah. as as we say goodbye? Yeah, I would say you know, it's okay to be challenged. You know, and especially if if this is your only view, like you, the only thing you know about Revelation is you know the rapture the mark of the beast you know a lot of crazy stuff happening a you know a thousand uh thousand year millennium um understand that there are other viewpoints there are other perspectives um greg beale's shorter commentary don't get his longer commentary it's very tough but his shorter <laughs> yeah. commentary on revelation um that was very eye-opening for me yeah. and i've actually written a couple of articles when i you know when i first started encountering um this because i had to work out my when i when my dispensationalism unraveled i you know after a while i'm like okay i have to work out my eschatology um and so Greg Bill was one of the first that I encountered that really challenged that preset, what, you know, what I knew. There was another book called Kingdom Come by Sam Storms. Right, yeah. Um, and it's really, it's a case for amillennialism. It's a thicker book than what you described, but it's, it's I think it's easy to read. It, it's not complex. It's not complicated. It's, it's a little thick. But um, that is another book that I think if, you know, if for those who think, oh, this is like the only, if, if all you know is this, um, this dispensational framework, um, I, I think that he does a great job of, you know, of challenging, um, of challenging that paradigm. Awesome. Well, Lisa, thank you for this discussion. And, uh, you know, we, I think both of us having come from dispensationalism when we saw that, this conversation was popping up again, you know, an article on, on Christianity Today, Table Talk, Devoting Time to Eschatology. Uh, just made sense that we got to talk about this. So thank you for the chat. Thank you all for listening. Uh, that's it from today for Family Discussion, but we will be back next time for more current events at Family Discussion. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's Family Discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. 
Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion. Thank you.